Well, thank you again, everybody, for joining us as we're getting pounded here with a nor'easter here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Massachusetts. But wherever you are, be safe and warm. Uh, we're excited to bring to you today. We've done over an 80 of these um, uh, Explaining the Faith series. And today, as you saw on the slide, we're excited to talk about the incorruptible, something that you just don't hear about something that science doesn't even look at that much. And we're going to talk about it. You know, this is not pagan worship. This is not voodoo. This is not witchcraft. You know what this is? This is something the Christians did in terms of relics going back to the days of Christ right after and the earliest Christians first century and incorruptibles go back early as well. And we're going to talk about it. Thank you for joining us in this exciting uh, topic. Uh, you know, we also, we, uh, we've done, as I said, over so many of these explain the faith. We just had uh, our how to pray video that I did on this series hit a million views uh, just on YouTube. Now, if you include Facebook and YouTube, we've had several videos over a million, but just YouTube alone, uh, How to Pray has just hit over a million. So God bless all of you and let us pray. We've been joined here with a relic of St. Faustina. And so at the end of the talk today, I'll give you the blessing with her relic. But let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit down upon us to bless us. Open our minds and hearts to all these extraordinary graces and gifts of our faith. And through the intercession of Mary and all the saints, and through the passion, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, may this dedication of all those watching and practicing of their faith lead them to eternal life. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you again. So as we said, we'll be talking today about incorruptibles and about relics. Now, let's start with incorruptibles. Exactly what is that or who is that? All right. There are many, hundreds, if not thousands of examples in the church of someone or something having some supernatural uh, thing happen. For instance, the body. When we die, our bodies decay. It rots. But many, and there's been over a hundred cases in the church fully verified that are not explainable. Several of them are explainable by scientific reasons, but there are many that are not. And we're going to talk about that. So what are the incorruptibles? They are saints whose mortal bodies um, have not fully decayed or corrupted after death, even though they should, right? Uh, and we're going to talk about, again, explanations for this. So we can see these saints, um, uh, they're on public display, especially in Europe. If you're in Europe, you can see these bodies. In fact, the very first one, as I mentioned a minute ago, goes all the way back, second century. Let's look at our next slide. This is the very first incorruptible. This is St. Cecilia, right? The patron of music musicians, all right? So she was reportedly the first incorruptible, and this is an example of her. This is not her body. This is an effigy, okay? It's like a statue or a model of it, but that's what it looked like when she was found centuries later and where she was not decayed, all right? And we'll talk about why this church does that. 
So anyway, we have some great examples, like, for instance, Teresa of Avila in the 1500s. Uh, she didn't rot, even though she was buried in a lot of wet mud that should have rotted. Uh, the bodies of Pascal Balon, also in the 1500s. St. Francis Xavier, also in the 1500s. Wow, the 1500s, the time of the Reformation, God rose up some great saints. So St. Francis Xavier, St. John of the Cross, also 1500s. Um, they all remained fresh and intact, despite that they were covered for months in sacks of quicklime. And quicklime is a chemical used to hasten the decomposing of the flesh. And so the bodies withstood that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And so we, we have so many examples of this. Let's go to our next slide. Here's St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. All right. Sometimes these saints are special because they were given special missions. Margaret Mary was given the message or the mission of spreading the sacred heart. So we think maybe she was incorruptible because she participated in this incredible mission. But guess what? Sometimes not. Let's look at our next slide. Our next slide, this is St. Clair of Montefalco. She lived in the late 1200s. Um, this was a holy Italian nun that unlike Margaret Mary Alacoque didn't have a great mission, but yes, in a way she did. Um, she told her sisters, if you are seeking the cross of Christ, take my heart and there you will find the suffering Lord. Now she died, right? And her body was incorrupt. So the sisters removed her heart or had her heart removed and imprinted on the cardiac tissue were figures of the crucifix, complete with the five wounds of the crucifix. Remember the five wounds, the two hands, the two feet, and the side. This is incredible. All right, let's talk about another 1500s saint, St. John of the Cross. When he died in 1591, he was buried in a vault beneath the floor in the church. And when the tomb was opened nine months later, and this is all documented, I'm not making any of this up. And we're just going to give you a few examples here in the beginning. We're not going to spend the whole talk just giving examples. We're going to go into much more. But anyway, the tomb was opened nine months later, and the body was fresh and intact. Now, here's the weird or amazing, however you look at it, they decided to cut off a finger to be able to have a portable relic. So anyway, they had this uh, finger, and when it was amputated to use as a relic, the body bled, just like if you <clears throat> cut off the finger of a living person. This is amazing. Just the same way. Then later, his body was exhumed in 1859, and again in 1909, and the body was still fresh. This is St. John of the Cross here. Then it was last exhumed in 1955. Now, this time, the body's nearly 400 years old. Do you expect to see what happens to a body after 400 years? There's nothing left but a skeleton. But his body was still moist and flexible, and the skin, quote, was only slightly discolored. 
amazing. And so um, this is what we have in, in the example of holiness. Now, it doesn't have to be just the full body. Sometimes a particular limb or even an organ of a saint will be incorrupt and not decay. Um, like the tongue or the jaw of St. Anthony of Padua. He was known as a golden speaker, like St. John Chrysostom, a golden tongue. Um, or the heart of St. Vincent de Paul. Or here, let's look at our next slide. That's the heart of St. John Vianney. We actually had that here at the shrine uh, not too many years ago. And actually did a talk on that. So this is incredible. So this was the St. John Vianney, and this is a picture of his heart. So the title is reserved for bodies or parts of the saints that we would expect to rot naturally, but does not. Hence the term incorruptible. Very amazing. And we have many more saints than the ones I just talked about. St. Clair of Assisi, St. John Bosco, St. Charbel, Brother Alex's favorite, uh, Padre Pio in some sense. He was on the title side. If you saw the title side with the laying body there, that was St. Padre Pio. And so we have some incredible examples. I want to just give a few more before we go into answering questions about incorruptibles and then show you some incredible relics, relics of Jesus coming up, like the spear and, and, um, and even his tunic. So stay with us. But I wanted to go now to some incredible saints whose bodies are incorruptible and where we can find them. Let's take a look at some of these slides. Now, our next slide, there's Father Joe Roche. He actually did a YouTube talk on this. St. Vincent de Paul's heart is at the chapel of Daughters of the Daughters of Charity inside the shrine of Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal in Paris. So right there is St. Vincent de Paul's heart. Now, in that same um, Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal in Paris, you have St. Catherine Labouret. She lies there, incorruptible. So if you've ever get to Paris, that's a place to go. All right, so these are some powerful examples. Now let's take one of the most amazing ones. Next slide. This is St. Bernadette Subarus. And you can see in that slide, I mean, my goodness, that's beautiful. Now, yes, there is a light wax, uh, a light wax mask put over the face. And we're going to explain in detail what that is and why the church does that. But for now, we'll just say that her body is still fully intact. Her body lies there at the sanctuary of St. Bernadette Subaru in Nevers, France. And so again, some powerful French. Remember France, the first daughter of the church. She's also, I think, the first daughter of the incorruptible. So there's amazing Italy too. All right, what about my, one of my favorites? She's one of my patron saints taking care of me, St. Rita. Let's look at our next slide. Now, there's no um, additions there. That is purely her. That's St. Rita of Kasha. And she was what they call like a sleeping baby, smelling. She actually smelled of sweet fragrance. She lies in the sanctuary of St. Rita of Kasha in Kasha, Italy. So again, more Italian there, French and Italian, beautiful. All right, let's do a couple more before we go on. We talked about John Vianney's heart a second ago. Let's look at our next slide. 
There's St. John Vianney. Now that's amazing body in, corrupt, in an incorruptible state. Now there his face also has a slight wax mask. And again, we're going to talk about that. But his body lies so beautifully preserved in the sanctuary of ours, again, in France. So amazing. All right, two more quick ones, or one more quick one. Let's look at Robert Bellarmine, another great saint, pro post-Reformation. He's at the Church of St. Ignatius of Loyola um, in Rome. And so you can see him now there. There's more of a statue in place of the body. Well, then, Father, this is a joke. These aren't incorruptible. You're just making statues, but we're going to explain how it came about. So stay with us. Now, there are many, many more. We can't cover them all, but I found a great video, and cameraman Giuseppe put it together for me. And so we're going to show you. It's only three minutes, but it shows you some example because there's no way I can cover all these incorruptible saints. They're amazing. But we'll show you some great examples right now. So um, let's watch this video of some of the incorruptible saints.
So those are some really good examples, but as some of you might have noticed, some of those bodies look, whoa, Father, they look really decayed. Right now, we're going to explain that and explain how this all works together. For instance, there's a lot of questions. Um, you know, for instance, non-Catholics will ask things like, well, why do some non-corruptibles or incorruptibles stay incorrupt for centuries, supposedly, and then suddenly decay? If they were holy they would remain forever incorrupt. No, that's not the way it works. Uh, we'll explain that. Some other questions. How come some body parts remain incorrupt after separating from the body, but the rest of the body corrupts? Oh, interesting. If this is a sign of saintliness, some ask, why aren't all saints then supernaturally preserved? All right, we'll give you an example. You can't get two greater saints than St. Bernadette, who we already talked about, and St. Therese of Lisieux. Both of these were 19th century French girls who went into the convent, died of tuberculosis at an early age, were canonized, are saints, were very holy. Testament proves that. But St. Bernadette's body was incorrupt. But St. Therese's body, when they exhumed it, was just a skeleton. And I, I laughed the other day when we had our shorter video. I said, I, I think it's because she cried too much. When I, when I read Story of a Soul, I was just like, please stop crying. I, just, I, couldn't, I couldn't relate to her. But as I explained in a past talk on St. Therese, I, I began to see the beauty. Uh, no, just kidding there. It's not the reason. But God has his reasons, right? Now, interestingly, incorruptibility does not imply that the body can't eventually corrupt or rot. It can. Many holy corpses that were initially, initially found preserved are now skeletons or decomposed. There's nothing wrong with that. Why? Well, all right. It's like when bodies in, uh, in explaining, in a way that can't be explained, decay rapidly, all of a sudden, after decades of being incorrupt. Once, for instance, that they are moved. So, okay, you have this body that's incorrupt, all of a sudden they move it, and all of a sudden it, it, it decays. This is because perhaps the original environment had been, for instance, airtight. Now deterioration of incorrupt corpses could be attributed to exposing the body to bad air where it was once corrupt because the person was holy. Now it's put into bad air. It can corrupt. God doesn't, doesn't stop natural physics. All right. Modern paleopathologists from the university of Pisa studied this. Did you know this? With Vatican support, the Vatican, the church has always supported science. The team studied microenvironments in the tombs of incorruptible corpses. All right. They discovered that small differences in temperatures, moisture, and even construction techniques led to some tombs producing naturally preserved bodies, while others in the same church didn't. Now, I don't know if you could draw a conclusion from that because 
Maybe it just happened to be a coincidence. I don't know. Or maybe that's just happened to be the tombs where the truly holy saints, the holiest of the holy, were entombed. So I don't think you can draw that conclusion. It was observed that if the bodies were moved or if the climates changed, they then deteriorated. So there are plausible scientific explanations all right, so these, these explanations or the possibility of things like um, lost embalming records that maybe they didn't know the saint was actually embalmed have led the church surprisingly to change its doctrine. We can change doctrine. We don't change dogma. We can revise. I shouldn't say change doctrine. That's a bad term. Sorry. Develop doctrine. And now incorruptibility alone by itself is not always treated as miraculous because science can explain some. Some bodies were administered acid baths or other treatments to help preserve them. All right. Corpses have been pickled, right, in vinegar, wine, or alcohol to stop smell and decay. And sometimes the record of this has been lost. You know, the English word for embalming means to put on balm. Balm is a scent. You smell it, that's embalming. So embalming developed a wide variety of preservatives and methods to delay decay, but it never prevents it. That's why these miracles, I still believe these are miracles. Because some people say, well, no, they were embalmed. But even embalming, you've ever seen a body dug up? It was embalmed in, the, in World War I, and you see it now, it's a skeleton, right? And so today, embalming is more putting something into the body to ensure preservation. Now, the point is this, everybody. There's no attempt by the church to deceit. All these non-Catholics, I just saw several when I was doing research on this, and, and we didn't talk about this a lot in seminary. I remember only one part of one class that I had in seminary. We all loved it. This, is, this whole series is me going back to seminary because that was the funnest time of my life, relearning everything I learned in seminary and bringing you with me. And one of the things that we talked about was these incorruptibles and miracles, but we didn't spend much time. Small point. Now, there is no attempt to deceit because honestly, sometimes over time, the knowledge of embalming was lost or certain saints, we don't know how they were treated, which could affect them being incorrupt or not. So there is human interference like embalming, there's environmental conditions, like we talked about with the airtight tombs or something like that, that may protect the remains. This is, this is fine. The church has never argued this. We're not, church isn't trying to deceive you. Contrary to all these videos I see out there saying the church is a fraud because they're trying to make you believe this, thing's, this body's corrupt when they built a statue of it and told you it's incorrupt. We don't believe the statue is incorrupt. The statue was built to show you what the body looked like when it was found incorrupt centuries ago. So even though we have all these factors that could explain it scientifically, so environmental conditions, human interference, embalming, 
Nevertheless, once all these natural explanations and human interference and environmental factors are accounted for, once the church looks into each case, an astounding number of cases still remain unexplained. That's amazing. St. Bernadette Subaru, we just talked about, she was the one that uh, Our Lady appeared to in Lourdes, France, told her she was the Immaculate Conception. She died long before modern embalming procedures were developed the way we have them today. Now, as he said, uh, embalming just delays, but does not ultimately prevent the decay of one's body. And she's incorrupted. She was before modern embalming. Um, so these bodies of people like St. Bernadette and maybe even St. Catherine Labore, another French girl, they remain incorrupt. Even though there's, their bodies, we know for a fact, were never embalmed and had been exposed never to special environmental evidence uh, elements. They were just exposed to the regular air. So take that out of the equation. Those examples I gave that maybe they were in airtight containers or maybe they had special embalming. With St. Catherine Labore and St. Bernadette, they didn't have that. And many, many other saints. Yet they are incorrupt. All right. They, they had not been embalmed and they were not exposed to special environmental elements. So how do you explain it? All right. Here's what happens in the process. When a body is exhumed, it's usually because they think the person's a saint and the church wants to move the body to maybe a more prominent place, for example. Now, during the move, clergy and even scientists inspect the remains to make sure, first of all, they have the right person and maybe, <laughs> strangely, cut off a few pieces to make portable relics, all right? They did this with St. Faustina. We have her toe bone right here that I'm going to give you a blessing with. Um, but anyway, this is how we find incorruptibles because they usually exhume the body to move it to a better place and then they see it's not corrupted, you know, because this is what they're doing. They're moving the body because they think this person's a saint. So they're looking at holiness. Now, even if the body is incorrupt, that pristine state during inspection usually isn't permanent. <clears throat> and that doesn't make it a fraud. It doesn't. God, in times of my life, has allowed me to be holy. And in times of my life, I've been unholy. It's not permanent. Well, ultimately, I want to get to the permanent state of holiness. But I've gone in and out at times growing up. So many, to preserve them at the moment they found them, were given wax masks. Because they would dig up the body and immediately it was incorrupt. But then it would start to decay. Even though it should have decayed in the ground. And they would do things like put wax masks on them to preserve them as the way they were when they were first found incorruptible. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not fraud. It's showing you what it looked like 
That's why we have that statue of St. Cecilia we showed you earlier with her laying on her side. That's not her actual body. It's a statue now that shows her body the way it was found incorruptible many years after her death. All right. So many are given these masks to represent this condition upon when they were discovered. All right. Others are reburied. And they have a sculpture of the corpse, like we just mentioned, St. Cecilia. Some are displayed in glass caskets. We just showed you some with Robert Bellarmine, and we'll show you some more. With a thin lax layer over the skin. Again, to show what they once looked like and to preserve that for centuries to come. Nothing wrong with that. A few hundred saints are fully incorrupt corpses, but still wear wax as masks or over their body. And we get it. This sometimes causes confusion, but it doesn't need to. All right. Unless you know who's who in the saint world, it's sometimes impossible to tell the real saints incorruptible body from an effigy. All right. And from, from that. So again, no one's trying to trick us or pretend that these bodies are something they aren't. That's not the case at all. It's just trying to capture something that was once in a beautiful, pristine state, but it may not last. So they want to preserve it. It's not that they made it that way or pretended it was that way. It was that way. And then now they want to preserve it. So anyway, more sophisticated scientific explanations as well um, as mistakes found in hundreds of years of uh, preservation records and lost embalming. This has forced the church to really reconsider how we label an incorruptible, all right? Which saints, for instance, deserve the title of an incorruptible. So according to church doctrine, as I said, incorruptibility alone cannot now be counted by itself as miraculous. To me, I, I, I don't see why not, but we're going to follow the church. For example, the Vatican never used the words miraculous or incorrupt with John the 23rd. Instead, let's look at the next picture. Let's look at our next slide. John the 23rd or blessed John the 23rd was remarkably, now saint, was remarkably well preserved. That's how they stated it. The church doesn't declare an event miraculous just randomly. And that's smart. They wait until every natural explanation is eliminated. All right. Now the point with John the 23rd is there were some natural elements there. He was put in a lead tomb that was airtight, things like that. So the church never went around screaming, miracle, it's a miracle. Church didn't do that. All right. Although little scientific study is done on the incorruptibles, and I, I don't get this. I, I mean, when they do dig up a body and they find it immediately incorruptible, even if it decays later, why aren't there news teams out there? I said earlier, where was Katie Couric when they would open these tombs and see the body incorruptible? No matter what happens afterwards, and if you have to preserve it with wax or whatever, despite that, how about the fact when they opened the tomb that it was perfect? That right there alone deserves scientific recognition. 
And there's little science that studied this. The church treats them, however, very detailed, documents everything. Of all the miracles in the church, this is probably the best documented, these incorruptibles. You know, when they would exhume a body, they'd have witnesses, they would take oaths, they would do affidavits by workers and professionals to make sure that everything was, was, was legitimate. Church is doing it the right way. Now the church advises us to first look for natural explanations. And it's good that she's cautious, right? So while the church doesn't deny the possibility that there is a miraculous, incorruptible body, it doesn't promote it. It doesn't go around running around saying miracle every time. According to Rome, these phenomena may confirm holiness, but on its own, okay, on its own, the preservation of bodies does not automatically prove holiness. Does not automatically make you holy. There have been instances of people who did not seem saintly, yet they were incorrupt. In fact, it doesn't even prove the Catholic teaching because there's examples of Buddhist monks who are incorrupt. These could be due to the reasons we mentioned above, embalming or airtight caskets, things like that. Now, before we get onto relics, which I think are fascinating, we're going to finish with this part. Why do we believe this? All right. We believe this because God provides so that the bodily remains of some of his faithful will not go undergo corruption. Starts with Jesus and Mary. Acts 127, the father did not allow Jesus' body to experience corruption while in the tomb. He resurrected. He ascended. It's the same with Mary and the dogma of the assumption. Now, we're not sure Mary died or not, the Dormition, the church doesn't say, but what the church does say is she was not corrupted. Her body was assumed into heaven, uncorrupted. Also, saints that spoke with Mary, like we mentioned St. Bernadette. These two did not face corruption. So here's the point, everybody. They remind us that our faith is both physical and spiritual, like the sacraments. What is the sacraments? It's a physical, like the bread and the wine, but it's also the spiritual, the body and blood of Christ. So spiritually, it's indicative of the person's mortal remains being ready for the resurrection. This makes perfect sense. If the church accepts it as supernatural, meaning of God, then we could say the person was holy. But just because they're incorrupt, we might find due to science, there's a reason we can't automatically say the person was holy. Do you get that? Get that difference? Often coupled with also incorruptibility is the sign of sweet smell, odor. You know, that's how, we'll, that's how God will judge us, the Bible tells us. When we go before the throne of God in judgment, do you know that how you will be judged is what God smells? Will he smell perfume and roses and beauty, or will he smell stench and sewer? That's how God knows instantly when we're in his presence. That's incredible. I know we're anthropomorphizing God, but this is what the Bible says. 
In the Old Testament, a sweet-smelling odor was a metaphor used to indicate a person was pleasing to God. And while a dead human body may not necessarily always smell bad, I guess, it's highly unlikely that it'll smell good, right? Um, therefore, an odor of sweetness would be induced by the supernatural, by God, and therefore miraculous. So when you ever have that sweet smelling of a corpse, that's usually going to be miraculous. But remember too, though, the devil, the evil one can actually produce a sweet odor. False, but apparently sweet. So we have to be, make sure we're careful that a sign would be corroborated by the holiness of the person's life. That's the ultimate factor. So let's go back to John the 23rd. Yes, there could be explanations of science, like he was sprayed with chemicals and he was put in a casket sealed with lead with little oxygen. But one can see that it was probably miraculous because the life he lived, it's connected. The incorruptibles demonstrate that the spiritual world and the physical world are intertwined. Now I'm going into some deep theology for you right now. Go back to seminary with me because this will help you understand our Catholic faith and why we have these things. People leave the Catholic faith because they're told this is pagan worship. We're not worshiping these. We're honoring the saint. You, you honor the art, you honor the artist. The artist is God, the art is the holy saint. So when we honor the holy saint, the art, we're honoring God, the artist. And so we don't know how exactly these two intertwine, the spiritual and the physical, but we know what we do with our bodies affects our soul, and what we do in the spiritual realm affects our bodies. It's true. The bottom line, the incorruptibles are a sign of the resurrection. Your body is getting prepared to be perfect in heaven. This is amazing. All right. 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown corruptible, but it is raised incorruptible. It is sown in a natural body, but it is raised in a spiritual body. So here's the point, everybody. And we're getting ready to go on to relics. Aging, death, decay. They were not in God's original plan. This is why all the patriarchs in the book of Genesis lived to hundreds of years old. Hundreds of years old. As man went over into the centuries, we got more corrupt. And so we don't have that anymore. The preternatural gifts of Adam and Eve before the fall, infused knowledge, no concupiscence, meaning they weren't tempted to sin like we are, and bodily immortality. These saints then, when you see them incorruptible and their bodies are intact, it means they're going back to the way it was before Adam and Eve in the fall. Back to the preternatural gifts, bodily immortality. This is just simply a precursor for the resurrection. It makes perfect sense. And so in the meantime, for those who are corrupt, we have relics. We got St. Faustina right here. This is her toe bone, right? And we don't worship her toe bone. We don't worship her, but it's a sign 
of the body that she will have that will be united with this holy person in heaven. Now, relics are authenticated. Now, let's take a look at some of these relics. Let's look at our next slide. That's a picture of some relics, just like I showed you with St. Faustina. Now, they are authenticated by the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, so they are real. All right? They are real. Now, relics of saints are respected or venerated, similar to how we venerate holy images or icons. We don't worship them. They have existed since the first century, so they're a part of Christianity, but again, not worshiped. You don't believe this? Somebody says, you, you crazy Catholics, this is a, a modern invention. No, it isn't. Go back to the very first centuries. You ever hear of Polycarp? His relics are recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp, 150 AD. Wow. We have relics because the mortal remains of the deceased are associated with the holiness of their souls and await the reunion of bodies in the resurrection. It makes sense. This is what our whole faith is about. So the word relic comes from reliquiae, which means remains. And the Latin verb relinquiare comes to mean leave behind or abandon, and that's what we call a reliquary. This is a reliquary. So the, the, the object that holds the relic, this, is called a reliquary. Right inside here, I actually I should probably say this, this little casing, and inside the reliquary is the relic of St. Faustina. And so we have this can't forget to honor the art so that we honor the artist. Now, <laughs> this is why we have these. So anyway, a reliquary is what houses the relic. All right. So we said we have St. Faustina right here. But relics are a way to bring the saints to the people when people can't come to the saints. I travel with a little relic of St. Faustina. And I take her on my missions and she goes with me in my bag. I lost my bag at the airport a while ago. And I was so frustrated because there was no help, it seemed, in finding it. And then all of a sudden, I remember St. Faustina was in that bag. And I started praying to her and we found the bag. <laughs> Praise be to God. All right. So ways to, to bring saints to the people are relics. All right. Again, homage or respect is not paid to an inanimate object, to a bone, but to the holy person, right? And indeed, the veneration of a holy person is itself honor to God, the art and the artist, right? All right, wrapping up here, getting close. I want to get to some interesting relics because God's grace comes to us through material things sometimes, as well as through spiritual. People don't understand this. They think this is crazy Catholicism. It's not. It's in the Bible. Where's that in the Bible, Father Chris? Oh, wow. If I had a dollar for every time I heard that. Well, I'll tell you where it's at in the Bible. Exodus 13, 19. Listen to this. Moses took Joseph's bones with him. For Joseph had made the Israelites take, Israelites take a solemn vow, saying, 
God will surely take care of you and you must bring my bones up with you. Why? Oh, he's a dead person. I get that all the time too. He's a dead person. They're a dead person. Mary's a dead person. She can't do anything. She can't hear you. She can't. No, the saints in heaven are alive. Look at Moses on Mount Tabor when Jesus talked to him. Did he seem totally dead? No. And now he's being told to take the bones. How about 2 Kings 13, 21? But when the man came in contact with the bones of Elisha, he came back to life. You crazy Catholics, you have these bones? Well, 2 Kings 13, 21 says when the bones of Elisha were touched, the person came back to life. God can work through anything he wants, be it a person or a thing. We want to limit God and say, you can't work through that bone. He can if he wants to. The Bible says he did. Mark 5, 25 through 34. But if I just touch his clothes, I shall be cured. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her infliction. She didn't even touch Jesus. She touched his clothes. Acts 19, 11. So extraordinary were the mighty deeds God accomplished at the hands of Paul that when his handkerchiefs, now we're talking a handkerchief, were applied to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, how can you get any more clear than that? The person didn't touch Paul. It was their handkerchief. God accomplished at the hands of Paul that when his handkerchiefs were applied to the sick, their diseases left them. That's exactly what the Catholic Church is doing. All our criticism of not being biblical, I can find you and tell you where it's all biblical. And so pray for us because we want to start, I want to start writing books again to get all this put down so we can get the message out there that our faith is true. What about Acts 5.15? It says cures were through Peter's shadow. His shadow. This is very interesting. Father, you worship them. No, we don't. You will never see me put this relic on that altar. You know why? It's not allowed. We can't put relics on the altar for veneration. Well, wait a minute, Father. You have altar uh, relics in the altar. Okay, you're telling me you want to put them on for worship, but you got them in the altar. You know, did you know that? That each altar in a Catholic church has a little relic inside the altar. Did you know that? Not to sphere. That's from Revelation 6, 9. Quote, When he broke open the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered and died because of the witness they bore to the word of God. That's why we Catholics have relics in the altar. Revelation 6, 9. Well, Father, I'm confused. What is all this relics? It sounds like a bunch of pagan stuff. No, it's very simple. First, second, and third class relics. Okay, what's a first class relic? A first class relic is part of the saint itself. 
So for instance, a bone like St. Faustina right here, toe bone, that's a first class relic. It can also apply to the events of Christ's life, not his body because he rose, but the cross, the crown of thorns, things like that, or any physical remains of the saints, their hair, their bones, as we said, like Faustina. That's a first class relic. We can't sell those. Those are sacred. Also, a second class relic are items that the saint used or owned themselves, like a Bible or a rosary or the clothes they actually wore or like their habit. That's actually a second class relic. They actually had it. They possessed it. They used it like a Bible. But a third class relic can be sold. We sell them in line with the church. These are things that have touched a first-class relic or a second-class relic, like a small piece of cloth, okay? So if you take a small piece of cloth and you touch it to the relic of St. Faustina, you have a third-class relic, all right? Now we always laugh. People say, well, Father, I, I shook the hands of John Paul II. That makes me a relic. <laughs> In a way, but we're talking about inanimate objects here. All right, now, to finish, I think this is fascinating. I want to show you a list of relics and where you can find them around the world. Now, we did this briefly at a talk I did about eight months ago called The Saints, The Rule of the Saints. And I did some of this in that talk, but I want to kind of add to it here, and we want to finish with this because it's very powerful. All right. There are many relics attributed to Jesus. I bet you didn't know this. I didn't until, again, I came to the Marians. Now, we probably didn't know these things all existed. Now, some you do. Some are obvious, like the Shroud of Turin. And we have a whole talk uh, way early in the Explaining the Faith series on the Shroud of Turin. And Brother Mark pointed out something very interesting. EWTN is sponsoring at the Bible Museum down in Washington, D.C., a thing on the Shroud. And we're going to make some phone calls, hopefully you'll be seeing coming soon a show on EWTN, our Wednesday night shows at 6.30 um, about the Shroud. But if, until then, watch my talk on the Explaining the Faith several months back that had the Shroud. But anyway, that's considered a relic, all right? Jesus touched it. Now, pieces of the cross and instruments of the Passion are claimed by many places. For instance, the holy thorns and the crown of thorns. Some are in London, England, and some are in Notre Dame, Paris. Remember when the fire hit, was it two years ago? Um, that priest raced in to save the portion of the crown of thorns. That's a relic. That's a precious, the most precious of all. Now, I bet you didn't know some of these existed. Let's have Brother Mark show the next one. You know what that is? That's the holy land. The spear. Now it's been refined, they said, but this is in Vienna, Austria. So if you're near Vienna, Austria, you can go and see the Holy Land, supposedly, and this is the only place claiming it. This is why I believe it's true. The spear that pierced Christ's side, the spear of Longinus. Let's look at our next one. You know what this is? This is fascinating. This is the seamless robe of Jesus, his tunic that he wore when he was sentenced by Pilate. You know, it makes sense that they save these things because if Jesus already had affected the world so much 
Do you think that you're just going to throw these things away the day Christ was crucified? Many already believed he was God. These things would have been saved. It makes sense. And that was the tunic. This is in Trier Cathedral, the oldest church in Germany. I said before, I want to get to Germany because some of these relics are amazing. I've talked about these before. Let's go to the next slide. You know what those are? Those are the sandals of Jesus in Prum, Germany. Also the Trier Diocese, same location. Supposedly, these are the sandals of Jesus. What an incredible gift that we have. And again, there's no reason not to believe this. Tradition has told us, and Paul says, hold fast to tradition, oral and written. In the Aachen Cathedral in Germany, there are more relics. The knapsack carried by Jesus, the loincloth of Jesus, a dress of Mary. Oh my, I want to go see that. And the decapitation cloth of John the Baptist. Again, why wouldn't that have been saved? We save matchsticks from um, a house of matches that we built when we were a little kid. Why wouldn't they save these elements of Jesus Christ, who many knew at the time he was God? It makes sense. All right, let's look at our next one. You know what this is? This is kind of a different looking element. This is the girdle of Mary kept in the Basilica of Our Lady in Maastricht, Netherlands. Wow. Powerful. So if you're ever up in the Netherlands, go see that. Go see that element. Now, you'll never find a first-class relic of Mary. Why? Why will you never find her bone? Because she was assumed. Body and soul into heaven. And then what about this one? The next one, this is at the shrine of the three kings in Cologne Cathedral, there in, again in Germany, that contains the bones of the three magi. Wow. Powerful stuff. All right, so we're going to say this, end this part of the relics by saying where you can find some incredible relics, all right? St. Peter. Where do you find St. Peter's relics? At St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. That's an easy one. All right, what about St. Mark? Where's his relics? His relics are had, held at St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. If you're in Venice, go see the relics of St. Mark. What about St. James? St. James relics are held at the cathedral. I was there of Santiago de Compostelo in Spain, called the way, you know, walking the way. What about St. Andrew? His relics are contained in the Basilica of St. Andrew in Patras, Greece. Because this is where all the apostles went around the world, the known world, to preach the word. It makes sense that the relics are there. And nobody disputes this, so it makes sense to me. It's real. What about St. Matthew? St. Matthew's relics are in the Cathedral of Salerno in Italy. And St. John the Evangelist, his tomb, is said to be in the Basilica of St. John, guess where, in Ephesus. Turkey, where he lived with the Blessed Mother. Again, it makes sense. So God bless all of you. You know, I think it's important to finish, though, 
with supernatural viewpoints here. Now, some things and some events, like an incorruptible, may have a natural explanation, as we said before, or they may have supernatural. The ones that do not have a natural element and can only be explained by outside spiritual forces are what we call supernatural or miraculous. Of these, there are two kinds. From God, and believe it or not, from the devil. There is the divine and the demonic. These supernatural events or interventions can be diabolical. Those are of the devil. Or when they're from God, they could be angelic through the angels. Saintly, meaning through the saints. Or done directly by God himself. Hmm. Other events might be combination of both natural and supernatural. But supernatural occurrences in the lives of the saints are not required for you to believe them. It's kind of like private revelation. Even though we really suggest you follow what happened at Fatima, you're not technically required as a Catholic to believe what happened at Fatima. You don't technically have to believe it. We strongly suggest you do because it's approved by the church, which means you're free to believe it. It's the same with these incorruptibles. You don't have to believe it's true. If you say, Father, I believe everything about the Catholic Church. I believe the Mass. I believe in the miracle of the Eucharist. But I just can't come to believe in these incorruptibles. I think science can explain it. That's okay. But if you do believe it, it shows that we have a little more of a natural, uh, supernatural element to our faith. You can be a good Catholic and not believe this. I personally believe it, but be careful because if we consecrate or concentrate too much on this, it can really distract us from the deep core of our faith, the mass, the sacraments. You know, the devil can turn you away from true worship and get you obsessed, obsessed with this stuff too. You have to be careful. Like you can become so obsessed about stigmatas or whether or not the Pope consecrated Russia, for instance. Just do your first Saturdays, which we'll do next Saturday. People can get so wrapped up in that that the evil one can keep you away from growing in the depth of your faith in terms of the Mass and the sacraments. I know some people that will absolutely never miss a chance to criticize about the Holy Father not consecrating Russia, but then they won't bother going to Mass. It's backwards. All right, final paragraph. God bless. He's sticking with us. There are, however, even though, yeah, you don't require to believe it, there are useful things about these stories to be Catholic. Why? Because miracles remind us that our religion is founded on a miracle. Why do we want to reject miracles? Our whole faith is based on a miracle. 
That's why when these crazies say Jesus didn't really perform miracles or like uh, the feeding of the loaves and fish, it was just the miracle was people shared. <laughs> Hogwash. Our faith is based on miracles. Jesus performing miracles, the miracles of the loaves and the fish, the miracle of the resurrection. So why not believe in the miracle of the incorruptibles? Tales of this, these kind of things remind us that our faith is supernatural, not just natural. And how that supernatural, the spiritual world, interacts with the physical. How we are in the spiritual realm, we determine our physical bodies even. It's that connected. This question is vital because it leads us into a conversation and understanding of God's plan for salvation for us. Amazing. And you know what? The best example of a miracle, where is the best example of a miracle seen in the church? The sacraments. That's where you see God's miracle becoming his body and blood, forgiving your sins in the confessional. That's where the spiritual interacts with the physical. I'm receiving the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ in the mass because the spiritual grace given through the church. Focusing more on sacraments is not because we don't want to reject these other miracles of the incorruptibles, for instance, and be less supernatural. We actually, it becomes more supernatural. So, Keep that in mind. The saints were not necessarily obsessed with supernatural events. You know, Lucy even, even was not really blown away by the miracle of the sun. She says what's more important is to lead a holy life than to see the sun spin. If you were a witness to seeing the sun spin, it's more important that you follow the Ten Commandments, she said. Interesting. That's because when we do, we're on fire with the Holy Spirit, working through our lives, inter interacting with the spiritual and our physical. That's what the sacraments are. When miracles are authenticated, it's awesome. They complement the church, the greater sacramental life. This is, this is what our faith's about. You know, Christianity, though, our Catholic faith is first and foremost centered on the miracle of the incarnation and on the miracle of the resurrection. So keep the perspective proper. We don't doubt the reality of those miracles or dismiss them. But we don't want to then therefore dismiss any other thing. Because God can work more miracles than the incarnation of the resurrection. We don't doubt the reality of the incorruptibles, but don't put them on the level with the incarnation or the resurrection. That's the only point the church is making. In other words, there's something far greater than even an incorruptible. And let's look at our next slide. It's right here, the mass. Far greater than any miracle other than the incarnation or the resurrection is found right here in the mass. A miracle happens every day. Every day you join us on a live stream, every day that you go to the sacraments, a miracle has occurred. It's even like going into confession. You know, when you go to bed at night, it's like you have a mini death. 
It's like you die. And then when you wake up, it's like you have a mini resurrection. It's the same in the confessional. When you have mortal sin, you have a mini death. And if you die in that state, you're going to have an eternal death. But when you go into the confessional, you have a resurrection. That's a miracle. The Catholic Church approaches these in the right way. In other words, have a, be kind of skeptical. Don't believe everything you hear. You know, when people write me and they say they saw Mary in the to- butter of their toast, God bless them. I'm not criticizing that. But I'm not going to send the bishop there necessarily to necessarily look at their toast. Now, there are some stories that warrant weeping images and other things. But we have to keep it in perspective. So be open-minded. Don't fall into just believing everything, but at the same time, don't be so cynical that your heart can't be open at all. This is all part of the gift of our faith. An incredible gift in miracles. And I think I want to do a talk in the future on miracles. Because the greatest of the miracles we have every day in the sacraments. But these kind of things like the incorruptibles are miraculous too. The ones that are proven supernatural. No natural explanation. So praise be to God. And we hope you'll continue to join us. We had a shorter talk today, but that'll give you more time to be able to pray. And to join us um, on Wednesday for our EWTN show. But uh, please stay with us because I think the EWTN show this coming Wednesday is an hour earlier. I think it's going to be on at 5.30 Eastern time instead of the normal 6.30. It's going to be on angels. And those are miraculous in itself right there, the work of the angels, right? And so in the meantime, let's finish with Brother Mark. I'm going to show you a couple last slides. If you haven't already joined us, please do be part of our Marian family. It doesn't cost anything. It takes but a minute. You can visit us at micprayers.org. You can sign up to be a Marian helper. You pray for us. We pray for you. And by decree of the Holy See, when you are a Marian helper, again, it doesn't cost anything. Um, you don't have to donate a certain amount. If you can, if God puts on your heart to donate and help our mission, praise be to God, but it's not required. You still get the graces. And by decree of the Holy See, you share in all the graces of our rosaries, masses, prayers, penances, just like you were a Marian father. You get the grace, same graces I get. That's incredible. Without having to give up home or wife or children necessarily. Praise be to God. Don't miss that grace. Join us at micprayers.org. And we're going to be continuing um, giving you our DVD. It's the next one up there on shopmercy.org, or you can call 800-462-7426. I have several of the early episodes of Explaining the Faith that are on DVD, not from this series, but these were parish missions that I did. So if you say, Father, I've already watched all your parish mission, I mean, all your Explaining the Faith. These are before that. These are parish missions. So please get explaining the faith. The next are the things that I want to show you, the two books. Um, My Understanding Divine Mercy book is, I think, an incredible grace for what's coming up through Lent to prepare for Divine Mercy Sunday. This book explains 
everything you need to know about divine mercy, the feast, the image, the novena, the chaplet, the hour, please get the book at shopmercy.org or again, 800-462-7426. And finally, praise be to God. You can get, if you are struggling in any way, um, if you've suffered any kind of loss, if you're suffering anxiety, depression, or you just don't understand why God would allow such suffering, get this book for yourself or someone you know. It's called After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You. Please don't be misled. Yes, it's a lot about suicide. I use that example of my own grandma. She took her life. But this book is for any kind of tragedy or loss. And so you can get that at the same place at Shop Mercy, but you could also visit suicideandhope.com because we list and memorialize those who have been lost. Praise be to God that he gives us the grace. We'll never get over a loss, but we can get through it. And this book will help you. So next week we will be doing First Saturday. Please join us. We've got some great stories of the Blessed Virgin Mary's apparitions. We'll be right back here at 11 o'clock next Saturday for a short talk, followed by the devotions of First Saturday. And again, please keep joining us on EWTN for Living Divine Mercy. And until then, may Almighty God bless you. And through the intercession of St. Faustina and this her relic, may Almighty God heal you of any ills of the mind, the body, or the soul, and through her intercession, lead you to eternal life. And through this intercession of St. Faustina, may Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Why be a Marian helper? Because we Marian fathers celebrate a mass for you and all our members each and every day. You can share in all the prayers, good works, and merits of all the Marian priests and brothers around the world. And now you can share the graces just as if you were a Marian priest or brother. Every All Souls Day, we see a mass for all the deceased members of the Association of Marian Helpers. Again, there's no way that after we die, we can help ourselves. But we have to rely on the prayers of those here on earth. And we, members of the Marian Fathers, will be praying for you as a deceased member of our association. You can share in the graces of the perpetual novena to the Divine Mercy. Remember, Jesus told St. Faustina that the chaplet of Divine Mercy is one of the most powerful prayers we can make. And every day here at the Shrine of Divine Mercy, we pray it and you can share in those graces. So if you have any questions or you wanna learn more how to be a Marian helper, please visit micprayers.com or call 1-800-462-7426 and let me personally pray for you and your loved ones. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit 
divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.